Hello again. Uh, oops. I hope that was interesting this morning and um, stimulating for questions and discussion over lunch. Uh, it's been great to chat with a few of you. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me along here. Um, we looked at all the challenges and the, uh, the difficulties and the obstacles, the ideas and the ideologies and the idolatries and stuff like that that are coming against the church in the culture today. Um, what I want to do now is look at how we might respond to these challenges and how we might see opportunities within the challenges as well. Um, I'm going to talk for a little bit and then we, we'll have some time for questions and then there's a set of seminars and stuff uh, in an hour, about an hour, isn't it? Something like that. Okay. Right. How do we respond to all this stuff? Um, I'm hoping. Aha. Uh -huh. Oh no. I'll just run through this. Just a recap for you. Oh, it should, should be near it now. Which way do I point it? Possible responses. Okay. Well, I've got five pos possible responses. I'm sure there are a lot more. But being a good evangelical, they all begin with F. Okay, <laughs> this is really, really important that, that we match things like this. The first one is fight. Fight. Okay, fight. Uh, there's a lot you may have noticed. Christians like to fight. Uh, evangelical Christians love to fight, especially each other. Um, <laughs> the problem with evangelical Christians is we don't just um, think that we're right about things, we believe it. And that, you know, that, that love of the truth can create a few problems, uh, I've observed. And when you've got all these cultural challenges on us, um, it can also give us a sense of we just need to rage against the machine. You know, you kind of develop a, a kind of anger against everything out there, which is not only counterproductive for what's out there, it's probably not good for the person getting angry as well. In our work with the Alliance, we deal with a number, not a number, a few evangelical organisations and people who express their anger at the policy landscape and the decisions of government in a way that makes it more difficult for us to express perhaps a more nuanced or practical way forward. Um, it, it helps them paint all evangelicals as ang angry, Trump-supporting, gun-toting moralists, um, which is not always helpful. The problem as well with a fight mentality, if you, you know, you get a lot of this language like you know, fighting, fighting on, fight onward Christian soldiers and things like that. It can also fuel a victim mentality. And we, you know, the whole of the public square right now is characterized by self-designated victim groups. That's just, it's an arena of victimhood all around us. Race, gender, class, you know, anything that distinguishes one grouping from another, everybody's fighting to be the, the greatest victim. And although, although this identity politics is full of talk of equality and justice and diversity and stuff, as an expression of secularism, it can only really operate on the principles of victimhood or domination. It's one or the other. Victim, you know, I want to be a victim, but I also want my ideas to dominate the public square. And God's people, we can't play that game. God's people are not uh, victims, they're victors. Vic we are victors. And we're here to serve others, not to impose our worldview on others. Um, they should, you know, we should be demonstrating the now but not yet kingdom of God and showing how absolutely wonderful it is and inviting others to participate in it. It should be so attractive and appealing that it, it's like a magnet to people. Um, so fighting is one, is one option, and it's an understandable option, but if it plays out in culture, you end up with what the US have got, which is a culture war scenario where if you look at a voting map of the US, the red and the blue it's neatly divided so you've got the, 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 the blue edges of the Democrats around the coastal areas and then you've got this massive bulk in the middle of Republican votes and it's, you know, this kind of zero sum game of one side of society the religious and people who think like them and the non-religious and people who think like them if you play into that fight mentality, 
it creates a zero-sum game where nobody wins and you end up with a polarised society, effectively two societies living cheek by jowl. And I don't think that's sustainable. Um, it just creates a lot of anger. We've got the presidential elections coming up in November this year. And uh, if the impeachment stuff is anything to go by, it's going to be another circus. Uh, so the important thing is when we fight, we've got to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. The Lord's work in the Lord's way. The, the book of Ephesians calls for us to put on the full armour of God. There are military metaphors in the Bible. Uh, but it's to take our stand against the enemy. A friend of mine who is a theologian was telling me before Christmas that a lot of these military metaphors are about arming to stand. They're not actually about attacking, if that makes sense in the Bible. In Ephesians, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and, very important, and there, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We often over-spiritualize this scripture, I think. Paul is identifying two things that we battle against. One is government, states and authorities all around us. Yes, honestly, we're not anarchists, by the way, and we're here to obey the law. But Paul makes it clear that in a fallen world, by, you know, we are going to be battling with the authorities. This is the way the kingdom engages um, but also against uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And it's when them two meet, the temporal and the um, spiritual, that, that we have problems. So fighting is one thing, but it's got to be done in the right way. The second possible response is we can flee. We can run. We can all go and live on a caravan site in Wales um, and just get away from everything, you know, just step out of society completely. And this is where you have this move in the church of pietism. You know, attend to the inner life. Look after the, our community. There's a really important book on this, The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher, which is a seminal book that's profoundly shifting thinking. And I think it's a very good book, by the way. It's just the conclusions I've got a few issues with. And Rod Dreher says this, there are, there are three kinds of people who run towards disaster, not away, cops, firemen and reporters. And what he, his analysis is that the entire West, his analysis is a civilizational analysis. And our, his analysis is that our civilization has gone, cannot be redeemed. Therefore, we need to do what we've done in the past with the Benedictine approach. We just look after our own communities, we batten down the hatches, and we ride out the storm for a few centuries. Not very appealing, is it? Uh, but that is, it's a strategic response. It, it's, a, it's a legitimate strategic response to what's upon the church. He doesn't mean that we don't do evangelism. He doesn't mean that we don't live in cities. He just means that we have a different view about who we are and our place in society. The problem with this is, where do, we, where do you flee to? Where do you go beyond the reach of the imperial regulatory state into what your children are being taught? You've got, years ago, you had lots of Christian families leaving the Soviet Union and the Baltic states and moving to Sweden, yeah, and, and Scandinavia. Now you've got Christian families fleeing Sweden and going back to the Baltic states because their children are being taken off them by the Swedish state for no other reason than they are Christians. That is the reason. That's the, why they're losing their children. Nothing's happened. No complaints are made. They're Christians. So they're going back to the bottom. The point is this, where do you go from the reach of, of, of the law? You've simply got to stand your ground. I don't think that opting out like this is an option. The next uh, response is, we could fall silent. We could just, like an ostrich head in the sand, just say nothing just hope all this passes by and don't cause any trouble, don't make any waves. Um, I, I, sadly, I think this is the general approach of most Christians in Britain. I think this is the, it'll be okay, it's kind of, you know, we'll, we'll get there, it'll all work itself out. Um, but listen to this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was the pastor who was executed by the Nazis. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. 
Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And the point is this. When does our silence become interpreted as denial? Or even complicity? Or agreement? Um, We worship the God who spoke the universe into being. You know, we we receive the living word. Uh, This... We're a speaking, singing, worshipping, vocal people. Heaven is a noisy place. And we need to reflect that in our, in our lives as well. The next option, and you can do, do think of some questions around these uh, for when we uh, conclude. We could fold. We could fold. We could just go with the flow of the world. Just roll with it. Um, we could just baptise the world as it is. As a G.K. Chesterton once wrote, he said, only, only dead things flow with the tide. Yeah, it's brilliant. See what a quote machine he was, by the way. You know, being alive in Christ means that from that point in time, you are swimming against the tide of a, of a fallen culture. It's just life. You are a countercultural revolutionary figure uh, in the scheme of things. Martin Luther King said this the way of acquiescence leads to moral and spiritual suicide. And we see this in so many churches, organizations, denominations, and on a personal level. When, when the salt loses its saltiness, Jesus said, even the world doesn't respect it, it's thrown out and trampled on by men. Nobody respects salt when it loses its saltiness. So this is probably the most um, dishonouring of the Fs in terms of the, uh, the public square that we're in at this moment in time. So what shall we do? Fear not. I couldn't think of a last F. It was my wife who came up with this one. Fear not. I have to give her the credit for that. There's loads of scriptures in the Bible about do not fear, do not fear. Do not worry. Um, You know, Jesus commands us repeatedly. When he repeats something, very important. It's a command repeated. Do not worry. I remember um, going for a walk once over the Surrey Hills with uh, my house group leader, Rosemary, who was a formidable Bible teacher. And just walking along and I turned to her and I said, you know, I've, I've been worried about something recently. And she stopped and she said, stop right now. You need to pray. You're sinning. And I, I, I didn't even tell her what I was worried. I didn't even get a chance to tell her what I was being worrying about. And she had me standing in the middle of this field, repenting of my worry. I never even got to tell her what I was worried about. And then we continued with the walk. I've never forgotten it because it's true. You know, Chris Fallaton says that worry is faith in another kingdom. Faith in another kingdom. Or negative prayer. I've heard it described as that. It's not... It's a human reaction to worry about things. But I do think it's also a, a, a priority or a focus for discipleship to, as you go year by year with the Lord, you should be less of a worrier and more of a warrior. Uh, worrying doesn't help. Uh, I've got enough hair that's grey. I couldn't lose any more hair by worrying. So we need a different attitude um, of this world. The Lord says he's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We need to lay hold of that. You've got examples like Joshua, Caleb, Deborah in the Bible. I do think that we're in a season, we're in a context where we need that kind of attitude. Uh, Americans are easy at this. They they have this can-do attitude to things. We have a more deliberative, uh, discursive uh, approach to life uh, where we like to uh, weigh things up. But I do think we need to uh, learn from our uh, cousins across the pond and have a can-do attitude. And I also believe that if we do develop a fear-not attitude going forward, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, I believe the church in the secular century and the period we're in has been in a kind of dark tunnel. Uh, And now for the first time, For a long time, I genuinely believe there is light at the end of the tunnel. I genuinely believe that the cultural contradictions that are playing out are so profound and so obvious to people that um, there is a a rethink happening 
beginning to happen. And I, I come back from the US where I was over there over Christmas with a firm view that this decade is the decade that we push back this secularist, woke, um, atheistic, uh, ideological presence in, pub- in the public square. It will take a decade, but I do believe if God's people set their face to it over that decade, it will be done. Uh, and I, I think it's possible, absolutely possible, uh, for that to happen. Um, on that basis, how do we be salt and light in public life? And I've, this is just a range of sort of thoughts around certain points that Christians can consider. It's not exhaustive or comprehensive, um, but I just hope it sparks some sort of. Um, some reflection in, in our own lives personally about how we can respond and also how we can encourage each other to respond in public life. The first thing to say is salt and light. Do you like that? Uh, the first thing to say is, this might sound obvious, but uh, be Christian. Right? Be Christian. Be who God has made you to be. The Bible says um, we are a peculiar people. I know some people are more peculiar than others. But you know what? relevance in the culture relevance is a trap it's actually an idol for many years we've tried to bend in with and assimilate to the culture but what happens when the culture in general terms is so detached and so departed from the fundamental life of God that's uh, explained in the Bible you can't go with that you you have to come to a point where you stop apologising for being a Christian and just live a distinctive Christian life. Speak distinctively Christianly. You know, you don't need to say thee thou art and all this. I mean, that, that's not just what I mean. We are followers of the way. The way is not the way of the world. This is a fallen world and it's okay to be countercultural. And if we desalt ourselves, we lose our distinctive flavour that we bring, our cleansing our healing, our preserving quality in public life Um, so I want to encourage people to think about what it means to be distinctively Christian wherever God's called you the next one is to just do what God told us to do which is uh, the great commission proclaim the gospel to all creation, we are all here because somebody somewhere needs us to tell them and introduce them to Jesus. Did you know that all all sorts of other religions claim miracles, they claim all sorts of features that the Christian religion can claim, but there's one thing that a Christian can do that a non-Christian definitively cannot do, and that's introduce someone to Jesus. It's the one distinctive we have. Think about it. You can't introduce someone to someone you don't know to a stranger. You have to know them to make the introduction. It's the one thing that we can do. It's our USP, our unique selling point, our DNA. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says this. If we confuse evangelism and social justice, we lose what is the single most unique service that Christians can offer the world. Others, alongside believers, can feed the hungry. But Christians have the gospel of Jesus by which men and women can be born into a certain hope of eternal life. No one else can make such an invitation. Wow! What a privilege. What an honour that is. And history, and also what's happening today, shows us that where people and churches are Bible-based and gospel-focused, there is life, there is growth. God blesses it. And conversely, churches and people who depart from the the, uh, the truths of the Bible and just focus on their own lives and their own uh, whims and wishes or the, the zeitgeist, the passion of the day. If there's no life there. There's no life there. So, do you remember the, uh, the fridge magnets? Uh, keep calm and carry on. I should have got one of them up there tonight. Keep calm and carry on with the gospel. That's what we're here for. And it works. It really does work. I remember I organised... The last National Prayer Breakfast I organised, we had uh, Andy Hawthorne from the Message Trust. You know Andy Hawthorne up in Manchester? He's an absolute mad for it evangelist. And he just went for it in, in, the, in the central hall. In the, 
in the Palace of Westminster in the Central Hall there. And he was waving the Bible saying, I don't know what you politicians are doing, but this thing works. This thing works. But, but do you know what he'd done? He had behind him images, like we had screens on the wall. And he had uh, these little snapshots of people coming up, like a young woman saying, I was a prostitute, now I'm a nurse. This guy, I was a drug dealer, now I'm a policeman. And they just kept coming up. Boom, 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 boom. And there was just silence in the place. It works, okay? It works. Be encouraged. Speak up. And this is why we produced these booklets here. These, we produced these with the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. This is the slimmed down version. There's a thicker version if you like lawyers speak. Um, it's just your, your, your legal rights. You have huge freedoms to share the, the, the gospel publicly, uh, privately, online, in the streets, at the school gates, in, in the workplace. You have fundamental human rights to do this. Do not be told that you don't and do not be deterred from talking to other people about Jesus. Now, you need to be sensible and sensitive and you don't need to, like, rottweiler people with the gospel. But you can do it. Please do take these. These, these are all produced for you to encourage you to talk to other people about Jesus. The next point. Is this okay? Making sense? Show value. So, show the value of Christianity to our culture, past, present and future. What do I mean by that? Past. If you're an evangelical Christian, you have an unparalleled, illustrious history of contributing to the common good of this country. Unparalleled. Nothing even comes close. Where uh, we live in Bedford, uh, we live about a mile away from where John Bunyan was born. And there's a little John Bunyan museum. If you ever get to go there, it's very cool. Um, recommended. John Bunyan, you know, an illiterate tinker who was imprisoned uh, because he would not stop preaching the gospel. He could have walked out of prison at any point. Did you know that? He could have walked, but he, but he, he wouldn't on, on the principle that the gospel needed to be preached. And now he's, he's held up as this great foundation of human rights and freedom of speech. It was about the gospel. The gospel. You know, you've got John Wesley, Charles Wesley. Olney is near me where I live. Charles Wesley, where he wrote the Olney hymn book with Cowper. It's, you know, but this is all our history, quite apart from what I talked about earlier. We need to know our history. We need to talk about the value of it. Present. We need to understand and know and have stories about what the church is doing right now in this country. We're doing some stuff in Parliament at the moment on working with uh, faith in later life groups, working with the elderly, and what Christians are doing around the country. These ministries are incredible. I've got a friend of mine in Manchester called Debs Fiddler who works with all these elderly groups all, all around uh, the east side of Manchester, the council lover, everybody loves it. She's going in and spending time with people that everyone else just neglects and forgets about. And uh, I just love telling her story because this is what it means to be salt and light. We've got to show the value of who we are um, in this. Uh, yeah, and it's not a kind of false humility. The Lord says, um, um, let your light shine before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine. And then there's the future. What I talked about earlier. Take every opportunity to remind people, especially those in authority, that there's going to be a lot more of us around in the future than there is now. It is a mathematical certainty that you will find nobody will argue with, no secularists will argue with, there are going to be a lot more Christians around in the future than secularists. A lot. Okay? That's just, that's just a given. Now, what that means is, if people, if people know you're not going away, they've got to do business with you. We are a stakeholder group. Do you understand that? This is who you are. This is your story. This is your family, your network. And you are part of that. And, you know, being able to speak that into society is really, really important. We do not have a discourse of decline. Deal, don't do I talked about the sexuality issues um, earlier today and it will be easy to just kind of skip around them a little bit because they're so uncomfortable and 
they're nettles we don't want to really grasp. But I want you to listen to this quote by a, a theologian called David Gushy, who is a theo- an evangelical theologian who was against gay marriage but then changed his mind and is now actually supportive of uh, same-sex marriage as he sees it. But what he, when he moved over to that side, what he found was he, he was astonished at how implacably opposed that side are to the idea that someone from the side he's come from might have a gracious, intelligent, thought-through argument. And he says this, It turns out that you are either for full and unequivocal social and legal equality for LGBT people, or you are against it. And your answer will at some point be revealed. This is true, both for individuals and for institutions. There's no getting around this stuff. If sexuality and identity are the presenting challenges for Christians in the Western context now, then and for our freedoms and everything else, then it is, we all have a responsibility to kind of get a handle on biblical sexual ethics. What does the Bible say? Why have we believed the way we believe for 2,000 years? Well, go way back into the Jew- Jewish. I mean, why do we believe what we believe? And like I say, my church, to their credit, they ran this long course it seems to go on forever. But it's just such a healthy thing to do. If this is the issue, we need to know what we know about it so that we can deal with it and not do it. Um, okay. Uh, speak up. I've said that as well. It's not a time to be uh, silent at this moment. The pastor of the Destiny Church in Glasgow this week, the church uh, that had the events cancelled that had booked for the Billy Uh, Franklin Graham uh, tour he said this, Andrew Owen he said, the day of saying nothing has gone heaven notes your silence and if they come for us they will come for you if they come for us they will come for you so I want to encourage people not to be silent, to be vocal to speak up for what's right to not let arguments and assumptions pass you by in a conversation Uh, I am committed my entire life, never to let the, uh, the idea that same-sex marriage is marriage or normative pass me in a conversation ever till my dying breath. Now, that causes a few problems in some places, but I will not stop, because I cannot stop. That's life. Next thing, uh, do something. You know, I, I talked about the Parkfield School um, um, incident uh, in Birmingham earlier and you know, I like to go in the moral maze and kind of speak into this but it's fascinating that it's the Muslim community has taken a stand um, and you've got a lot of Christians now swinging in behind them saying you know we agree and, and Jewish communities as well uh, we, we agree we need to take a stand and we need to understand that there are others who will help and support us on our website if you're a Christian parent I know it's very, very tough. It's not easy raising children in this cultural uh, landscape. But there are groups and there are resources that will support you to, and help you. And we produce the resource on our website called You're Not Alone, which helps Christian parents understand and navigate the education system. And we've got an amazing resource coming online, God willing, in the next few months um, about apologetics. Helping parents to help children to answer the big, deep questions that they're being bombarded with about what it means to be human, what is sex, what are relationships, you know, what is my body. Very basic questions. We need to be answering them. So, um, do something. Act. Get involved in your local school. Get on a, become a school governor or something. Laugh. Keep a sense of humour. Guard your heart. Uh, we talked about this earlier. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 2 is brilliant, isn't it? You know, I love Psalm 2. It goes on about the, the nation's rage. They conspire against God and against his people. Look at God's response. Laughs. He, God, like, literally laughs at this stuff. It's just pathetic. And we need to, and I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow morning. I do think we need a sense of humour and a sense of perspective. And let me tell you, the culture today is packed with comedy material. Absolutely packed. You've got to be careful. There are lines you can cross. But, by it's funny stuff out there. Um, 
Religious freedom. Yeah, this is really important. It's really important for us to all affirm the value of religious freedom for all religions. Freedom of religion and belief. And freedom to not believe as well is really, really important. Freedom of religion is the foundation for all the other human rights and civil liberties that we enjoy. If you think about it, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, all that stuff, it makes absolutely no sense without freedom of religion. That's why these despotic regimes all over the world, the first thing they shut down is freedom of religion. Because if you can shut that down, you can then roll on to all the other stuff. And the gospel... I think you can make a very strong argument for all our human rights and civil liberties all flowing right back to this one person who walked around the desert and only spoke for a few years and never had any money and then was crucified. You know, who was this man? Religious freedom. The gospel demands, sustains and extends freedom. It's all about freedom. Freedom properly um, stewarded, but it's all about freedom. So, please be encouraged to affirm religious freedom uh, for everyone. Defend free speech. Some people say some pretty horrible things about Christians, and we have been the butt of like pretty nasty humour for many decades now. But you know what? Um, I'd rather have that than have a public square in which everything everyone says has to be measured and uh, against the yardstick that will change constantly, by the way, by whoever's uh, in political power. As long as we're not promoting violence, and I would, I would hope that all God's people would speak the truth with grace, but as long as we're not promoting violence, or anyone else isn't promoting violence, Freedom of speech has got to be a good thing and it's got to be something that we really hold dear and we really promote and we, we defend even people who are saying completely horrible things about Christians. We, it's, it's a difficult one, this, because, you know, you want to hit them with something. But, but this is what it means to be in a free society and if we want to continue with our freedoms for the gospel, then we, we really need to defend the free speech of everybody. Okay, if we take it for granted, we'll lose it. Ask questions. Oh, this is great. So, when I went on the moral maze uh, before uh, Christmas, and it, I don't know if you know about the moral maze, it's the Radio 4 show. It's, it's like a bear pit, basically. You're thrown in with all these super clever people who are ready and have been sharpening their knives for you. Um, but I really enjoyed the last one because, by the grace of God, he enabled me to just keep asking questions that they couldn't answer. You know, does this look like a plural society to you? Does this feel democratic to you? Does this look like a society that protects uh, religious minorities to you? They couldn't answer these questions. It was brilliant. I really, I, you know, I, I, and you don't need to have all the answers. It's a very Jewish, very Jesus way of uh, approaching things, isn't it? You know, ask, someone asks you a question, you ask them a question. Uh, and I, think, I do think there's a lot in this for today. Um, some questions we can ask. In a liberal society, how can we learn to live with our deepest differences? That's a great question. Why is our so-called liberal society becoming so illiberal? That's another great question. In a democracy, shouldn't all voices be equally respected? Is Christianity worthy of respect in our society? There's a question. Where do we get our public virtues from? So, where do we get the idea that we should care for the elderly or, 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 or the sick? Okay, if, you, if you're not going to have Christianity, where are you going to get them ideas from? How are you going to support that generation to generation? Here's a good question. Where is the scientific evidence for that claim? And here's an even better question. What is a woman? Actually, I've been struggling with that question for many years. Um, uh, oh, what does it mean to be human? Can I identify as a marshmallow today? I mean, you can ask these questions in this cultural context. You will not get answers. You'll just get 
silent. Um, next one, seize the opportunities. There are many opportunities in this cultural backlash. Like I said earlier, many people are feeling the angst and the, the, they're disconcerted by everything. It's, it's good to recognize that, to have an affinity with that. Uh, people are not happy with the nature and trajectory of our society. Agree with them. Agree with them. Critique secularism. You don't have to defend the way things are going crazy out there anymore. It's not your fault. We've had 100 years plus of a secular experiment that has been utterly catastrophic to human life. Do you know how many people were aborted in the last century? Have a guess. 1.5 billion. More than all the wars in human history put together, times two. Yeah. You don't have to defend this society that we're in. Critique secularism. Keep pointing the finger. Keep saying, that is what you get when you, get an when you go atheist in your society. This is what it looks like. This is what it's always looked like. Do not give that up. This is a great moment to do that. Critique secularism. And it's myths. We're a minority at the margins at the moment. We're not the centre of our society. And Christianity has always been most powerful when it's been a minority at the margins. That's where we're prophetic. It's, it's a great place to be. The next one. I mentioned this earlier. Resist victimhood. Don't get drawn into the identity politics uh, game, race, ethnicity, social background. Our identity, we need to know who we are in Christ, who Christ is in us. Um, this unity of that identity is really, really powerful because it witnesses that Christ is Lord, not Caesar. Christ is Lord, not Caesar. Uh, there's a really good book I read recently on this. I can recommend Douglas Murray's book, The Madness of Crowds. Um, yeah, Fascinating book because he, he, he's a gay atheist, right? And I'm reading this book thinking, this is brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. He's absolutely, his analysis is fantastic. And he's rolling through example after example of how the world's gone mad. And then there's a little bit at the end called A Prologue on Forgiveness. You should read it. And it's just in there. It, it makes no sense being there where it is. But it's kind of like he had to put it in. And it goes along the lines of, we used to forgive each other when we'd done stuff wrong because we had a God who told us that we needed to forgive because he forgives us. Now we haven't that, got that God. We're not forgiving each other as much. Isn't this a bad thing? Kind of. And then it rolls on. Then it ends and just kicks back into the book. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, what is going on in his head? Uh, it's a good thing that's going on in his head. So, uh, yeah, that's really, really good. Um, resist victimhood. Okay, the next one. Know your enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. The lost are not our enemies. I remember a, a leader telling me this many years ago. The lost, it transformed my view of the world. The lost are not our enemies. It's authorities and principalities and powers as well that we, that we deal with. The next one, build relationships with other Christians who are like-minded. It's really, really important. And also with people of other faiths. We had a really interesting conversation earlier about, uh, uh, who was it, Pauline, where is she? He was talking about a, a, a friend who's a Muslim. It's really important, particularly in a, the society that we're in right now, to, to build these friendships. And it's literally friendships, you know, just loving people. It's a great thing to do. And it provides all sorts of opportunities for the gospel as well. Um, and we should do it confidently. What we need to understand as well is that in this, um, in, in this cultural swirl of things, the, the ideologies that I mentioned earlier that are supporting the LGBTQIA plus agenda are fragmenting and fracturing. So the T has fell off the LGBT. It really, really has. Because of the, the logic or the illogic of transgenderism and non-binary distinctions, right? If you are transgender... You, all binaries, male and female, whether you're gay or straight, are oppressive. That's why, you know, remove the language of mother, father, son, daughter, things like this. Well, 
gay, gay people are now realising that they are now an endangered species and so are feminists as well. Women don't exist. Women's rights, the, the pay gap, the pay gap doesn't exist in the transgender world. It can't exist. Fascinating, isn't it? told you there was, uh, uh, there was a comedy material in all of this. But, you know, you can form alliances with people who are diametric, of different worldviews to you, but on certain issues, strategically, you can walk with them, you know, and, and they know that. And, and isn't this what it means to live in a common society, a, a society that has a focus on a common good? Tough enough. Christians need to toughen up. Uh, we really, really do. Uh, but we don't need to harden up. You can toughen up without becoming hard-hearted. Um, Martin Luther King, in his book, Strengths to Love, he makes this point that when he, he was doing the civil rights campaign, and that the problem with most Christians, he says, is they're soft-minded and hard-hearted, whereas God wants us to be tough-minded and tender-hearted. I love that. That's really good, isn't it? tough-minded, it's okay to be tough-minded and it's really, really okay to raise our children to be tough-minded. We need to raise our children in this um, context to be really strong-minded. That's a good thing. We're going to have to confront some things, um, but you know, it, it takes a strong mind to do that. The next one, I think is really, really important, which is grow leaders and focus on leadership. We have, alongside of all our public policy work in the advocacy team at the Alliance, we have a focus on public leadership. And it, it is simply that. How do we encourage Christians to lead whatever God's called on them in public life? How do we connect them together, resource them, you know, throw petrol on it so that it grows and grows and grows? This stuff, I absolutely... The public policy stuff side of my job is incredibly tough and unremittingly bleak. This is really positive. I love this stuff. This is what gets me up in the morning. Public leadership. This is a scripture from 1 Corinthians that we use a lot for it. And you can read the Bible and skip over this and, and, and miss it. But it's really important. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were first called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But... And it goes on, God took the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. A central part of the salvation process, methodology, story of God, is that he doesn't just save people, he saves people to raise them up as trophies of grace, and just shows them off to the world, look what I've done, look what I've done. So, a lot of people think that they're not leaders in this world because they see people around them who might be leaders. The, the church is full of leadership gold. You know, the entire book of Proverbs is a manual, a handbook on how to lead. The, the, that's what it was written for, for princes. The Bible wants us to lead. I could talk about this for a long time. Re I really, really could. We lead because God leads. We're made in his image. It's about taking responsibility. And we, we've got to recapture that as well. If we want to be a leader voice in society, and there's nothing wrong with that, if you do it on a Christian basis, servant leadership, the lion and the lamb. It's a different kind of leadership to the world. It doesn't lord it over people, but it's not scared of backing off from things and taking decisions. The great thing about this stuff is we, we go into the city and we talk to these people who are running these multinationals, and they get it. They know that nothing changes unless you wrestle it in blood and mud from there to there. That's how stuff changes. It's leadership. And we are, we are set, committed, over the next 80 years, to develop the leadership culture in the church in the UK. We're going to do it. Um, because we've got to do it. Um, public leadership. Okay. And you've got to be intentional about it as well. Leadership, it's not one of those things that you can just kind of, ha it just happens to you. You just you all of a sudden become leaders. I, I do a lot of work with the black majority churches in the UK, and I think they're way ahead of the curve on the uh, white churches in the UK in this. They seem to understand 
Uh, now they can overvalue leadership in some ways, you know, it can be a bit tribal like that as well with the African churches, but they seem to understand that um, leadership is part of the calling of God in this world. And I, I just think we're a little bit hesitant with that and we need to recapture it again. Okay. Um, oh, I'm gone. Build resilience. Oh, no, let, me, let me talk about leadership. One, one, one more story. Intentionality. Here's a good story about intentionality. In the South of America, at the beginning of the last century, we had an apartheid system based on racial segregation and injustice. Yeah? Uh, Martin Luther King Sr. and his wife were in charge of a church, in, the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Auburn, Atlanta, and they realised that they could not emancipate their people from this system. They realised they did not have what they needed to do it. So you know what they've done? This is a true story. They asked God for a son that they would raise up to be a leader to emancipate the people. Just think about that, right? That, seriously, they asked God for a son and then they developed all the skill sets that Martin Luther King Jr. needed. They sent him to the best universities, given the very you know, the greatest orators that ever lived, you know? And he'd done the job that he was there to do and then the Lord took him to be with him. And, and the point is this, when, whenever, and I meet loads of people who are, who are involved in public leadership, whenever God's people are intentional about leading change, God breathes life on it. He loves it when we do this stuff. So I want to encourage you, whatever you are, you have a, uh, the possibility in, uh, of leading. Having said that, you need to build resilience for this kind of um, work. Um, I was in Brazil before uh, Christmas um, holiday snaps. No, no, I, was, uh, I spent one week in Brasilia working with uh, these guys and a big load of net network of young people. In, um, and these are brilliant. These are intellectuals, you know. And they understand that the, the church in Brazil has changed the government. And we were just talking earlier about the fact that evangelicals in the next 20 years are going to represent over 50% of the Brazilian population. So they're in revival. But they want to transfer that revival into cultural goods that last a long time for the benefit of everyone and for the glory of God. They understand that changing government is one thing, but changing culture, that's another ballgame. You need to think in a completely different way. These guys are setting their lives out for Brazil. They're going to work into the fabric and the culture of Brazil, each one of them for the next 50, 60 years. And Brazil will change corruption, poverty, crime. These are the things holding Brazil back. And they're going to change it. They're going to change it. It's going to happen. Culture is formative. If you don't change culture, it will change you because it must change you because that's what culture does. It shapes your values and your views and how you live in the world. And because it's big and it's complex, you can't change a culture over... Well, God can do anything. He could change a nation in a day. I'm pretty sure of that. But unless he moves in power, our job is to work like yeast in a dough. Year after year, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And I do think one of the advantages the church has on the fleeting things of this world is we have the long view. But we don't often use it. I think the Catholics are good at this. You know, the monolithic Catholic Church just never moves, never does anything. But it takes, it takes the century view on things, which is actually, could be quite powerful in many ways. We need to, we need to take what um, Nietzsche called a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Changing cultures like turning an oil tanker it's imperceptible. You don't realise it's, it's so big. But it does turn. It really, really does. And you can turn it. And there are, we know many ways. It, it's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a strategic slog. So building resilience is really important. And our public leadership programme, I've got some of our um, leaflets here that just give, do take these. Uh, just give you a little idea of it. And there's a website, thepublicleader.com that you can go on and you can get registered and get connected into events and courses and resources and stuff. And it's absolutely fun. We get these, these young people commit to these courses and because we're the Evangelical Alliance, we get to get them the very best teaching. 
So we get Tom Wright doing theological training. We get the head of the British Army. We've got a guy who comes along, he's the former head of Airbus, you know, talking about, you know, uh, these, are, these are amazing leaders. We're getting them the very best leadership, teaching and training and, and, and connecting them together as well, which is really important. Okay, you can tell I get excited about this stuff. So, the next one is pray big prayers. You know, pray for Derby. Pray for this area around the church. Pray big prayers. Big, big, giant prayers. Prayers that are much bigger than you can really imagine. I mean, try and think of some of the biggest prayers you can pray and stop praying them. Because God answers big prayers. He really, really does. Um, you know, I prayed in Parliament for absolutely years. Uh, literally, till my feet bled. Literally, like prayer walk in Parliament. And I remember I was getting a vision. Uh, some American guy coming in and said, he's just had this amazing vision of water coming into Parliament, smashing everything up and being really really like destructive and then a woman phoned who was on a train coming back from Wales and she said I've just had this vision of parliament of water smashing everything up and coming through all the windows and I was like you're right okay the next week the expenses scandal broke remember that oh but I was working there at the time let me tell you parliament was not a pleasant place to be in it was absolutely awful but it was God destructively cleaning things you know, you pray for stuff and then it happens and then you think, oh, no, I didn't want it to happen like this, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's chaos. But that's what he does, isn't it? Look at Brexit. Goodness me. Uh, didn't pan out the way I thought it would, but there we go. Pray big prayers. And the last one is join the Evangelical Alliance. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a member of the Evangelical Alliance, I want to say thank you. If you're not a member, repent. Um, no, seriously, but you can join for like three quid a month or some price of a cup of coffee and there are forms down here and I'll fill them in and give them back to me today please don't take them away because I'll never see them again but get involved and support the work that we're doing and get involved with other organisations as well there's a lot of good organisations out there that are working in, in, in public life